time heals all wounds, including a criminal past. For decades, it was believed that people experience a slow decline in criminal activity as they age that culminates in full desistance at age 30 or so. This is the so-called maturational model of criminal desistance, one that aligns well with long prison sentences intended to isolate offenders from society until they no longer present a threat. Since the 1990s, other scholars have suggested that this maturational model is too deterministic. A closer analysis of the data, they say, tells us that there's a substantial element of choice in abandoning a criminal lifestyle. A substantial number of people who are convicted and serve time, nearly 50% of all prisoners, never return to incarceration post-release. And they do so at every point on the age spectrum. Moreover, according to the data, prison sentences function mainly as a timeout, not a deterrent. Crimes that aren't committed during someone's 20s or 30s end up being committed in their 40s. If this is true, our strategy of mass incarceration with long sentences is wasteful of lives and public resources, keeping many behind bars who could be safely released. Our guest today on Hardly Working is Dr. Sean Bushway, a criminologist at the University of Albany and a senior fellow at the RAND Corporation. Sean has been studying criminal assistance and has expanded our knowledge about something called the agentic theory of change. Agentic theory elevates the idea that for many involved in our criminal justice system, the decision to desist precedes and actuates desistance. People aren't conditioned out of criminal behavior. Rather, they reach a conscious conclusion about their own lives. They do not want to be, and in fact, fear the possibility of becoming something they don't want to be, a hardened, lifelong criminal. This fear leads to a reassessment of life choices, which becomes the catalyst for rebuilding a life. Sean detailed his theory in an essay in AEI's recently released volume, Rethinking Reentry, which was produced by a working group of leading criminal justice scholars, and we're happy he called in today to discuss it further. Sean Bushway, thank you for joining us on Hardly Working. Hi, thanks for having me. So, as you know, because you commented on this, you're a regular listener to the podcast. And one of the things I like to do with our guests is just have them talk a little bit about themselves, how they got to where they are today, give listeners a sense of career trajectory and why you felt a sense of vocation to go into the field that you went into. So let's start there. I always had a strong interest in working in urban environments, but it took me a while to figure out how I was going to do that. In my summer jobs in college, one of the years I worked as a volunteer in a community center working with young children in summer camp and trying to build an education program. And, and it wasn't a great fit for me. I was more analytical. And eventually, someone suggested that maybe some analytical work in policy would be better. Someone in college recommended that I might look into policy programs and eventually ended up accidentally in a PhD program in public policy. I'd actually applied for a master's degree in public policy, and they invited me to their PhD program because I had good math skills. My undergrad degree was in math, and this combination of math skills and an interest in the topic was somewhat unusual. And so I'm the only person I know who got a PhD by accident. Over time, while I was working on this PhD in public policy and economics at Carnegie Mellon, I grew interested in crime, and particularly the intersection between work and crime. And it goes in two directions. You know, one, if you have a criminal history record, you might not be able to get jobs the same way as you had before because of background checks. And then on the other hand, not being able to work might actually lead to increased crime. On the other hand, work may be a vehicle through which people 
exit crime once they're involved. We all know that people get involved in crime mostly as young people and then most exit. And the question is, the process of exit has always been quite fascinating to me and, and work may play a role in that in an interesting way. So that's really where I built my career, primarily in criminology departments as an economist. And then I eventually moved into a policy school at the University of Albany. And now I work at RAND as a researcher working on some of these same topics. I want to follow up on this a little bit because you almost immediately went to the subject matter and we're going to get there, but I want to hear about a little bit more about you. Who were your influences in terms of making a career choice? Well, you know, it's funny because I was, a, you know, I wandered around a little bit in undergrad. I think I changed majors four times considering great books and math and English and other things. And I wasn't necessarily the best student. And, I, and even in my, my summer jobs, the, the year after I worked as a volunteer in a community center, the next year I worked as an actuary. So go figure. And eventually this uh, guy by the name of Dr. Novak sat me down. He was the dean at the School of Science at Notre Dame and said, hey, you ought to figure out what you want to do. And he gave me two choices, library science and policy. And he set me up with an appointment to go meet the head of the library at the University of Notre Dame. As much as it was an absolutely fascinating conversation, it was also pretty convincing I didn't want to do that because it was too much of a generalist. And I really liked going down on one topic. And so I ended up pursuing policy. And I got lucky enough when I got to Carnegie Mellon with my accidental PhD to get connected to Dan Nagan, who's a well-known criminologist. And he really helped me move my, move my interest forward in terms of connecting my ability to do a very serious quantitative research with my substantive interest personal interest in urban areas and the people that live there. And so the next combination of sort of an interdisciplinary background, so though I'm trained as an economist, I'm very interdisciplinary focus. And, and Dan was a, is still a bit of a hero to me in terms of his ability to engage with really hardcore research, as well as engage in the policy sphere. He does a lot of work on death penalty and deterrence and other things like that. So he's had a huge impact on my career early on. And then kind of passed me off to another mentor named Ray Paternoster at the University of Maryland, where I did my postdoc, who similarly was very interested in both policy and very serious research and really was very formative in my career. Without those two guys, I wouldn't have a career. The path sort of evolved as it went forward, but I think I had good role models and good mentors who had some of the same combination of interests that I did in terms of quantitative skills, as well as you know, real solid substantive interests or personal interest in the in the topic area. Yeah, that's really interesting. How a couple things in there that really jump out to me, which is sort of the influence of mentors. You know, people who, for whatever reason, they just took an interest and they, as you said, sat you down and made you think about seriously about your gifts and your interests and how to bring those together. I, you know, we're such individualists, it's a little hard sometimes to accept the fact that we really do need other people to help us refine a vision and, and create a direction. It's a great story. Just one more question, then we can move on. But I, I'm curious how your family felt about your decisions and your choices. <laughs> well, it's interesting. Like, I, I grew up as a middle-class Catholic, but with these grandkids, on uh, my generation, my brothers and sisters and I are the only ones that went to college. My father went to college, but in terms of grandkids, it just wasn't part of the story. And so the idea of being a professor wasn't even on my horizon. I didn't know anybody with a PhD as far as I knew. 
until I went to high school. And it was just, it was just not really part of the gestalt, but I'd always been interested in research and I'd always been someone who kind of had a one track brain who could just sort of really focus on one thing for a long time. And so I think my parents saw when the opportunity to get an, a PhD, they saw that as a realistic possibility. That's something that seemed reasonable to them. But I still remember my grandmother when I was still working on my PhD in my mid twenties. This is a woman with an eighth grade education. Said to me, "Geez, what happened to you? You used to be so smart. You used to be good in school, and yet you're still in school." And it was just, you know, that kind of background sitting in her two bedroom tenement house in Claremont, New Hampshire, just that was fairly different. This this new track, and I think at times I wavered off the track. I actually took a year off and midway through the program and taught economics in Latvia, of all places. And I think my parents were a little worried at that point that maybe this wasn't going to go so well. And yet it was like yet yet another deviation or change in major or whatever. But it really just solidified my interest in, in the topic, made me grow up a little bit. Gave, you know, it was a very interesting time to be there in 1992, 1993, right after the Soviet Union fell apart. And, it was, and I came back much more committed to academia, research then made much better progress through my degree after that than when I started. So, you know, I think my parents were more worried just about the lack of focus at times, but were sort of very supportive of the PhD. You know, my four brothers and sisters, they all have advanced degrees of a type. They don't have PhDs, but they have law degrees and master's degrees and those kinds of things. So it wasn't completely out of the ordinary to go pursue a PhD in that, in that context. Well, that's really quite an American story, I think, of, you know, living out the uh, kind of the American dream. You can see three generations of advancement, high school, college, and then into these advanced degrees. And I love that story about the trip to Latvia because it's so, I think in my mind anyway, this, those are the kinds of experiences that actually propel people into their futures, you know, like, and taking that extra time is so important in career development. So, great story. Thank you so much for sharing that. Let's talk about the chapter that you wrote for us in Rethinking Reentry. Just give us a broad overview first of the thesis of your chapter, and then I'd like you, in that process, just kind of define the word desistance. What is it, and what are the kind of competing theories for it within criminal justice research? So, the the word desistance is actually relatively new in the context of criminology. There was an early on in the field, the field's only really a field since 1968 when the first criminal justice school was founded at the University of Albany. And then early on in the genesis of the field, there was a description of, of the behavior of people who can get engaged in crime as a criminal career. And the idea being there might be a, a starting point, which is called onset. And then they may be involved in crime over a certain period of time, and then they're going to stop. This process of stopping or the nature of stopping was described as desistance, although originally it was just thought of as you stop committing crime. There was no process. It was just an event because the idea was you just sort of exited. And there wasn't a lot of thought given to how exactly that worked or what that looked like, in part because early on in the field, most attention was given to this onset process during the 17, you know, 15, 16, 17 year olds. And it took a while to assemble the kind of data that would allow you to look at the back end of the career. And so, you know, a lot of the development in the 80s and 90s were about different techniques that would allow you to look at this process and collecting the data. So the government started funding data collections where they followed birth cohorts of people 
both with self-reports and official records over 10, 20, 30 years so that you could start to really understand a criminal career. Over time, another group of folks came along who didn't think of them as career as much thought about it as life course. So they're called life course criminologists. And they think about it as a less about sort of discrete events. I started, I stopped, and more about processes by which people get involved and then maybe exit offending in a more gradual way. And they started developing models that would allow those paths or what they call tra- trajectories to be traced or to be mapped empirically. And these paths usually look fairly smooth. The person starts, moves up, and becomes more involved in crime or more likely to get arrested in their late teens, early 20s, and then slowly declines over time. And so when people started thinking that way, there really became sort of two basic competing theories about how this might look. One is that everyone basically follows the same path. In other words, we typically call it the age crime curve, which is this idea that, you know, like as I mentioned, people start, move up, they peak in their late teens, early 20s, and then slowly decline, which is what you get if you look at the entire population of everyone. And the idea is that everyone sort of follows that same path, but maybe some people are higher up on that path than others. So there's a bunch of parallel lines that follow that curve that I just described. And then another possibility is that, in fact, that's not what's going on at all, but there are lots of different paths and lots of different shapes. And so it's only when you aggregate them or put them together that you get this smooth curve. And so there's and that's, two competing theories on this. And that's really where your chapter in our book in Rethinking Reentry kind of takes off is how do we think about that data? How do we look at it? What happens when we disaggregate the data? And that's where you have developed this, you and others, this idea that maybe the maturational model, you know, that people kind of age out of crime doesn't actually fit the data very well. So talk about that. Yeah, so when you do this empirical work, they generally you will find that there is these kind of glide paths. But there's some empirical reasons why that may be an approximation and may not actually accurately describe any individual path. It's very hard to describe individual paths. And it turns out that if you actually look at the data carefully, patterns that are much less gradual also appear very possible in the data, that it's possible that people do kind of exit and the way people sometimes think about this is people make a decision to, to change and start making different choices than they did before that leads them to stay out of crime. So that, that there isn't this slow, I go from three crimes a year to two crimes a year to one crime a year, but rather it's a, hey, I don't want to do this anymore. And there's an identity shift or a process where, you know, I, I want to have a more pro-social life. I want to be more engaged with my family, with work or whatever. And then people start making the different choices in the same environment as they had before to literally exit crime. But they don't, like I said, they don't gradually decline. They just stop. I mean, the stopping isn't easy. There's a process by which it stops. There's a process that has to keep going forward in order for them to stay out of crime. But there is this sort of more abrupt change. And I think the evidence is fairly clear that this abrupt change is, in fact, realistic. And the policies that you would pursue if you think it's people are just kind of gradually exiting as they age out of crime versus if you think people are making discrete choices to go a different path are quite different. And it particularly comes up in the context of things like, for example, parole decisions and probation decisions. If you think, for example, that everyone is just following the same basic glide path and they're just aging out, but some people are higher up than others, when you see someone who has a fairly high number of prior offenses, then you think, well, 
that person's gliding out, but they're going to take longer to get there, right? They're a high-level guy, so it's going to, like they've been shot out of a cannon. Think about it. Everyone's being shot out of a cannon, and the guy who's going faster is going to land farther out. So he's going to need, he's going to take longer before he actually stops committing crimes, and therefore you need to follow him longer. So if you believe in that path with these ideas that people are on different, same glide paths but different heights, then you're going to fo- need to follow the more serious criminals or people with more serious criminal pasts longer. However, if people actually just stop, and again, they just don't flip a switch, but they engage in real work to, to take a different path, then you're going to notice that much faster with someone who was a high-level offender than when they were very low-level, only had one prior offense, right? Let me interrupt for a second. So I want to focus on that. You talked about there are these desistance patterns where people just they do just sort of stop, but they don't just sort of stop without a reason. And you introduce this idea in the chapter about the feared self. And I want you to talk a little bit about the feared self as the kind of the trigger for that hinge moment. Yeah, sure. So the thought here is that people are are at some level introspective about how their lives are going. And they may reach a point where they go, wow, I don't really like what I'm becoming or what I am. And that image of what it's going to look like as I move forward might become clearer as they age. Initially, it's quite might be quite fun to engage in robbery, or you might become quite popular because you have money when you're young. But eventually, that starts to look much less attractive, or you start to see other people who have followed this path who are very broken by the time they're 30 or 35 or 40, or you start to see people that are dying. And you go, wait a minute, I don't want that for myself. And that becomes the, this image of what you're going to be become if you keep following this path become the feared, is the feared self. You make a choice and you decide to try to pursue another path. It's actually fairly realistic when you're talking about people convicted or in prison for them to want to make a change. Now, the change is not easy, so not everyone who wants to does, but there's pretty good evidence that quite a few people do. And there's both qualitative and quantitative evidence that suggests that this is possible. And that people that were would appear to be on a fairly you know high level trajectory just stop and and start to but you know again it isn't a switch they they start to engage in different behaviors they start engaging in more pro social activities they participate in programming if they're in a prison they start to work they start to you know maybe they try to move out of a neighborhood they start to engage in things that will allow them to to pursue a different path through what we call identity change. I talk with a guy who runs uh program called the Prison Scholars Program. And he describes exactly what this process that you just described, which was he had a pretty long criminal career, got a, a really hefty sentence at the end of it. And he talked about how, you know, that for the first year or 18 months that he was in prison, he kind of thought about his mental life has, <laughs> was focused on what could I have done differently not to get caught in the crime that eventually put him into prison. And then he, after a year, he started thinking about how did I get here in the first place? What happened that led me to this point? And that's, that was really the point of departure from the life of crime that he had been engaged in. It's really interesting policy to prompt or support that kind of reflective process that leads people into 
helps to lead people into a decision that they they really don't want to the fear itself is takes hold and people say i don't want to do that anymore what what are your thoughts on that so in the chapter i concentrate mostly on the idea that if this exists then you might want to have different policies then respond to this reality and at least acknowledge that these changes are occurring and tries to support those things once they happen the reality is we have very little understanding of how to cause people to have these insights. And one of the things that after we wrote this, the theory of the fear itself, that some people thought that we were advocating that you make prison really hard or that you, you know, try to punish people and make the experience of conviction and subsequent incarceration, for example, really painful. And I, I don't think that's, a, first of all, I think it's pretty painful enough, but I don't actually think that that's really the takeaway. Because I think that the things that you hear people are focusing on in terms of the fear itself is the absence of a family, not having a house, not having a stable set of friends. I mean, it's, it isn't so much that the experience of being in prison leads to, is in itself the, the causal factor, but, but we don't know how to flip the switch, essentially. And so initially, the thought is we should at least pay attention to the fact that this is happening and try to accommodate it and, and encourage it. And then I think the next set of research and projects is really trying to focus on how you might actually instigate this change or otherwise encourage it. And I think things like cognitive behavioral training, which is an evidence-based practice that seems to work, is at least engaged in that process. Motivational-based interviews are also where they're trying to get people to see what they might be motivated towards in a positive way and then take steps to meet those motivations. There is some experience in this space where people are trying, but I don't think we really understand how to you know, make people reach this decision or, or stick with it once they've made it. Because there's plenty of evidence that people go, I, I don't want to do this anymore. But then taking the concrete steps to really make it happen is maybe may the harder part. So I'm going to just opine here for a second on this, because I think it is so people who elect the people who make the decisions about how to structure our criminal justice system. The American public is actually pretty punitive in its orientation when it comes to crime. For some reason, we have this deeply ingrained belief that we're just not hard enough on people. If we were just harder on them, then they would change their ways. And I don't see much evidence for that. It doesn't seem like punishment is the path to desistance. Do you agree with that? Oh, I completely agree with that in the sense that, particularly when you think about harsher, people have typically thought about long-term, longer sentences, for example. And I don't think people who are making these decisions in the short run are, in fact, thinking very far into the future, right? So if we're really focusing on decision-making here, we're talking about people that are making decisions that are very short-term focused and aren't really thinking about the future. And so the idea that you're going to deter people or cause them to choose different paths simply because there's a long-term threat or a longer sentence doesn't seem entirely realistic to me. And even if, you know, to the extent to which there was some evidence that there's some deterrent effect, for example, bird strikes, someone did a study that showed there was a, a small deterrent effect, it couldn't be justified by the added cost. I do think that people do respond to quick punishments, quick rewards. They don't necessarily need to be very harsh, but they, they do need to be quick and certain. And so I do think that there are people who respond to incentives, and that can help people make different choices. But ultimately, if we're talking about moving on to a different path, 
punishment itself isn't going to be the, the thing that does it. It's going to be the attraction of the, an alternative life. And so, you know, one of the problems of being really harsh and treating people very badly is that you're in some sense not offering much of an inducement to go a different way, right? You're saying, hey, go a different way. But the very same people that are saying go a different way are the ones that are treating them badly. And so that doesn't seem like a very compelling way to make people choose a different path. It seems like it has to be much more constructive to start with, where there can be consequences for making different choices, but there can also be rewards. And it doesn't seem like setting it up in an environment that's very harsh makes much sense from that perspective, if you're trying to encourage people to do something different. That's a good segue to the next piece of this, which is you have some things in your chapter about the role of prison programming, what it does, what it might be able to do if it were structured and funded in a different, probably more expansive way. And so I'd like you to talk about, you know, kind of what we know about prisoner engagement in programming when they're in prison and what that tells us about their likelihood of successfully desisting. So one of the things that people do a lot in this context is they try to find programs that work, right? So they do a double-blind study and they do an experiment and they show, try to see if a particular program leads to better outcomes than others. And oftentimes, you know, there aren't a lot of prison programs that have been shown to be particularly beneficial in that context. But there's another thing that we also know, which is that people who participate in programs ultimately do much better when they're released than those who don't. And I think that's, you know, because people, there are some people that are making choices to follow a different path. And the path that you can follow in prison is program participation. And so that, it, that tells us something about people that we can actually use. If you give people an opportunity to do something that helps them move forward, then in fact, that moving forward, which in this case is program participation, and which may or may not be particularly helpful in a direct causal sense, is very clear about who these people are. So the person who comes out of prison with no disciplinary points, who's worked hard while in prison in his job or has participated in programming to meet deficits, that person statistically is a much better risk. And I think that's because that person is, in fact, someone who's demonstrated that they're moving on a different path. And that would require you to stop as a society and both as, and as also as a, in the prison context to not continue to punish people based on what they did. Because it's no longer relevant. If you, if you think people can make a discrete choice to move in a different way, then it, it implies that you should be paying attention to that more proximate choice and not the, to the number of prior. So this is so when you come up for parole, continuing to pay attention to the crime they committed 10 years ago doesn't seem to make a lot of sense in this context, because what really matters is what path they are on now. And there are provided that prisons provide opportunities for program participation and other positive things, you can actually see that path. And that path may be then connected to what goes on outside. Again, you have to provide these opportunities, which means that having a really punitive prison environment isn't such a great idea. But I think that those paths that people choose, right, if you're encouraging people to make choices, right, which is the problem, then you, know, you want them to make better choices and you need to allow them to make choices. And when they make choices that make sense from a pro-social perspective, you want to encourage and support that. You know, our colleague Grant Dewey, uh, the Minnesota Department of Corrections makes a kind of similar point about how, you know, our real challenge within the prisons is how few prisoners actually take advantage of any programming. And he estimated, I think, at about 30% of the prison population 
does anything proactive to engage in some sort of skill development, cognitive behavioral therapy, substance abuse treatment, all I mean, all the kinds of things that are going on and inside prisons. Some of that is, you know, again, choices that people make not to engage. A lot of it is that we just don't really have the funding to support expansive prison programming. That's not something the public really wants to invest in. But I keep wondering if one of the, an interesting experiment would be to really intentionally pump up prison programming in a few sites, flood the zone, as it were, with a broad variety of educational skill development, personal support kinds of services. Not so much that I think that that would be determinative, but I do think it might have a way of surfacing those who are on this assistance trajectory that have something going on inside them that suggests that maybe they they might consider something different if they had if they saw a viable alternative that they could make a choice. I'd really like to see that as an experiment somewhere in the criminal justice system, just to test that proposition of if you have a somewhat less punitive environment, and if there are a variety of potential options for programming, would that help us identify who's on their way toward assistance and help them or help strengthen those patterns and choices that we want to see, but really don't know how to create? I completely agree. I mean, I think that it doesn't make any sense that you say to that someone has been, in, you know, suppose you sentence someone to prison for two years and then you give them no access to anything positive. And then at the end of it, you say, oh, by the way, go forth and sin no more. Well, first of all, we can't predict who's going to assist and who, who, who isn't. We're very bad at that. And second of all, how are they going to take steps in the right direction? Why should they take no steps and then all of a sudden take steps? If pro-social environment engagement outside of prison is going to be work, and a stable family life, and et cetera, why shouldn't they also be trying to practice that inside? If the problem is they haven't done that before, then they may not know how to, or they may not have a lot of experience with that, or they may not come from communities where that's, that's common. So why not provide that opportunity in prison? And yes, you're right. It isn't going to be everybody, but it is going to be some people, and 30% doesn't sound completely unreasonable to me. Those are the numbers that generally come up with people that don't come back, leaving prison, 30% appear to exit. They just stop. And so why not try to find ways to encourage and support that and allow people, again, if you think people are making choices and not just pre-programmed black boxes that are going to follow a certain trajectory no matter what you do, but if, if they're just pre-programmed boxes, then prison is nothing more than a timeout that will, will prevent them from committing crime while they're, while they're active. But if, if, in fact, they are agents who can make choices, then you need to allow them to make choices and support and encourage positive ones while they're in every environment so that when they do go out into the new environment post-prison, they're able to continue by making those choices in a positive and pro-social way. The idea that somehow it's just going to turn on, a light switch is going to turn on the minute they leave the prison seems kind of silly. And so prison and probation and parole opportunities really continuing to provide an opportunity in that setting to make these positive choices and take a different path seems really important. Yeah, I agree. And I, and I think that it's really interesting because that actually fits with the kind of the conservative take on human agency, that people do have agency, they do choose, and 
they are responsible for their choices. You know, this is the conservative perspective on crime, but that only seems to have led us into the punishment side and not into the rehabilitation side of corrections. And I think a sort of a renewed focus on agency within the idea of rehabilitation is something that potentially holds appeal across a broader spectrum of opinion and values when it comes to shaping corrections policy. I agree with you, but I think part of what is important here is that sometimes rehabilitation is from a perspective of what we do to them. It's well within this deterministic frame, as opposed to providing opportunities for people to make different choices and to reach their own paths and choose their own paths. So that we, it's something that we're going to control or determine. And I think that is a different take on what it means to rehabilitate. And I also think it's worth pointing out that the problem with this sort of idea of choices is recognizing that not everyone has the same choices to start with. And that's true. And that's something really that we as a society are, I think, engaged with now more than ever. But that fact that not everyone has the same set of choices at all times or throughout their lives doesn't take away from the fact that they still have choices to make within the context of, the, of their lives and, and, and not letting them have choices within a prison or other contexts because you're, you're trying to punish them doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, this is where conservatives are not entirely consistent in their views on this because they, they believe in both choices and agency and they believe in punishing the hell out of people when they commit crimes. And those two things are kind of in opposition to one another. Because the underlying belief is that I can change this person from the outside. The reality is that if we spent 10 seconds thinking about the changes that have come in our own lives, it hasn't been mainly or sometimes at all on the basis of kind of external pressure, but internal decision-making, changes in values, desire for something different that leads people to change. So, Sean, we're at the end of our hour. I really, really appreciate your time this morning. I just want to put a bookmark in the conversation because I think there's so much more for us to talk about in this. And I know you're engaged in some really important research around other issues kind of touching on this question of agency, how people stop committing crimes, who's committing crimes and who isn't committing crimes how much recidivism we actually have. And those are all topics that I want to get into with you in our next conversation. So I hope you enjoy your time this summer away from, well, nobody gets away from work these days, I guess. It follows us around like a cloud, but I hope you enjoy your time away. It's been great talking with you. Uh, thanks for talking to me. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.